Greetings and welcome to another episode of The Deal Flow Show. I'm J.P. Maroney, your host, along with my co-host, Mr. Paul Nicolini, from here at our team at Harbor City Capital and The Deal Flow Show team. And we've got Bill Corbett from Innovative Payment Solutions with us. And there's some history here. <laughs> there is. There is. <laughs> so this is going to be a fun interview. We're going to talk about what a scratch golfer uh, you, you are. are. Yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm like, me on a golf course is like the Hilari bird. Uh, have you heard about the Hilari bird? You know what they are? Uh-uh. The Hilari bird is a three-foot-tall bird that walks around in four-foot-tall grass saying, we're the Hilari. <laughs> <laughs> That's what kind of golfer I am. So. <laughs> but looking forward to this, because I want to talk a little bit about your background, and, and let's start there, how you got started in the capital markets. I know you had a career in investment banking. And then I want to talk about the project you're working on now, the company you're running, which sounds very exciting. We're looking forward to both on the show and offline learning a little bit more about that. So maybe if you could just back up a little bit, talk about where you got started and maybe some of the early deals that you cut your teeth on. Yeah, I would love to. And first of all, thanks, JP. And, and Paul, it's so great to get reconnected with you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. Me too. Um, but, you know, if I could digress, I uh, spent 32 years on Wall Street. Um, my, I cut my teeth at Bear Stearns, spent about 10 years at Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. Uh, learned the business from a legend named Ace Greenberg, who uh, was at Bear Stearns for about 60 years. Uh, one of the great companies in, in the entire universe, Bear Stearns, before the collapse. But Ace was, was an amazing guy. He taught you to have the utmost of, of integrity he had a uh, mandate at the firm that you call people back in 24 hours, and if you didn't, you're fired. And so always in the back of my head, I, I have this complex where I have to, it's compulsive, I have to return phone calls. And it's amazing if you live by that motto that you pick up business. You never know what's going to happen when you are you know, standing up and returning calls. And so I learned the business at, at, at Bear and uh, Bear Stearns partner uh, of mine. We started a, a broker dealer in San Francisco. I was the CEO for about 12 years called the Shimano Group. And uh, we were uh, pioneers in the pipe space. I, uh, I know it's hard to believe, but there was a time where there was no internet and, e and emails uh, to maybe some of your viewers and your network. But the reality was, is uh, we had to network. We had to use DMB cards. We had to use institutional rosters. S&P. And uh, we were uh, kind of early, if you will, in the mid-90s to the pipe space. I, I saw the internet coming uh, and told my partners that if, if we don't pivot to something that has larger fees, we're, we're a dead man. And uh, Schwab, San Francisco company, was growing enormously. And we just felt that we had to change. So I, I think it's important as a businessman to keep your mind open. and. Uh, you know, I, I, I heard one the other day, it was, you know, mine's like a parachute, you know, unless it's open, it's, it's trouble. So we basically pivoted to raising capital uh, as investment bankers for larger public companies, large meaning sub 50 to sub $60 million market caps. Uh, Informix was trying to keep up with Oracle by cooking the books, unfortunately. And as they threw out management, the stock had dropped to about uh, a $50 million market cap. We raised uh, $50 million for them. It took about 10 days. 
And that kind of, you know, gave us a, a launch into the pipe space, both uh, on our ability to execute the relationships that, that we garnered through that. We brought Credit Suisse in and a couple other, Susquehanna and a couple other really interesting and smart institutions. And we saved the company. Uh, it ended up being sold for a billion dollars three years later. Uh, we leveraged that to do other pipes. And we were, you know, historically, I would say, you know, in the top two to three or four firms for, you know, in the almost five, six years in, in the amount of deals that we did in the pipe space. So that was a, it was a great learning experience. We all had a lot of fun. We did a lot of good stuff for, uh, for public companies. And we used that as a, as a lever to, to do bigger and better business. I have a couple of questions related to that, but I want to go back a little bit. You were talking about your early start at Bear and Ace, you said? Ace Greenberg, yeah. When you look at people like that that you followed, what were the characteristics that you think made them a great deal maker, a great in their space? Well, you know, he was very interesting because he had the highest integrity I've ever seen on Wall Street. You know, his, his word was his bond. Uh, he was a magician uh, and an expert bridge player. So he had a keen mind. Uh, he was one of those guys that, you know, was not infatuated with Ivy Leaguers, you know, because he was competing with Goldman Sachs for 60 years. Bear Stearns for 60 years never lost money in 60 years, which is extraordinary if you go back to the Depression. So they were very interested in hiring, you know, young, smart, um, aggressive guys that, that really weren't going to fall back on, you know, some pedigree and, and not, and, and worry about making the call. So, uh, smart guys, but the, the main ingredient JP was integrity. He, uh, he just told the truth and he was very simple in the way he approached everything. He had some, uh, some great lines, for example, if you don't want to be misquoted, Bill, don't give interviews. And, you know, he was just a, you know, a straightforward Midwestern guy that ended up in New York City and spent uh, about 75 years there. And, and he was amazing, too, in the sense that when he was young at 27, he had leukemia uh, and he beat it. Mm. And so he was very solid as far as a positive outlook on life, uh, very grateful, uh, had a lot of humility for being uh, as successful as he was. And he was kind of the broker to the stars, you know, the big players, the Larry Tishes, uh, some guy named Trump uh, used to do a lot of business. You could hear the blocks going by, you know, 500,000 chairs of Hilton, you know, in the eighties, that was a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was uh, a man of great integrity. And I think that's, that's the key to that, uh, to that business for him. That, that's yeah. interesting. What yeah. a testament mm -hmm. for those in our audience. And I know it's going to be, some percentage that don't know what the pipe space is, as you say oh, it. Let's yeah. define that for them because it's funny because we just got through having a conversation about this yep. on Monday yep. related to uh, another public potential public offering. But walk us through a pipe deal. It's certainly not in the plumbing industry, uh, but it, a pipe would be a, a public, a private investment in a public equity. And what that means is uh, you're basically marrying up as an investment banker uh, a transaction where you're introducing uh, a institution or a group of individuals to make an investment in a public company. And there's generally, you know, in, in the days that we were doing it, there would be some restrictions as far as the Reg D and having to register those shares. Uh, I know, consequently, we've seen, you know, 144 shrink to six months. But back in those days, we would 
we would put together a private placement. We would charge somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to 10% plus warrants. The investor, you know, you ask yourself, why would an investor do that? Uh, you know, the investor is usually getting a discount to the current stock price. He's getting warrants. Uh, sometimes he's getting a convertible debenture, so he'll get a coupon, maybe an original issue discount attached to that. So the, the reason one would do that would really be to get the warrants. Um, or maybe, you know, the stock's not quite liquid enough to buy a million or $2 million worth of the stock. So the pipe allows him or her to participate in a private placement. And the pipe space was pretty early in the mid 90s. Uh, it's become commonplace and ironically, during the, uh, the, the, the debacle we saw in, oh, 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 what was it? I guess it would have been 01, 02 when, um, oh no, excuse me, it was 2008 when GE and Buffett uh, made those $5 billion investments. Those were actually done as pipes, you know? So it, it's a great way for, if you believe in a company to own a large amount of the stock, uh, usually you can get warrants with these transactions, which it's like buying two shares for the price of one. It gives you, um, you know, some, uh, steroids, if you will, on the investment, if it works. And that money, pardon me, and that no. money's getting injected into the operating company as opposed to placed in the public markets with a traditional purchase, right? Absolutely. And, you know, the main thing from my perspective was being able to quantify the dilution JP so that. You know, yeah. you, you could approach the board because, I mean, if you think about it, who's your real customer? And I've always asked that. I mean, is, is it the individuals or the institutions investing in the, in the, in the enterprise or is it the enterprise and, and the company itself? And I always felt that, you know, you're going to do right by, the, by the, the company, but you really are fighting for the investors because that's the people that you're going to represent time and time again, hopefully with other transactions. But yeah, the money gets, you know, basically injected into the business, hopefully for, for a good purpose and growth. Um, and it's, it is basically the, the, the hope would be that the company and, you know, due to contractual obligations would file a registration or an S1 for those shares as well yeah. as the warrants. So that if you're lucky enough that the stock moves off the discount that you bought it from, you know, over the next, you know, pick, pick a number 30 to, you know, 90 days, maybe a year, uh, you generally can make a lot of money if you're right. Nice. I was going to ask, though, just from curiosity and maybe another perspective, what was the holding period on those restricted shares again back then? Well, back then, you know, Paul, it was 12 months. I thought uh, it was right. Okay. But, but you could circumvent that legally with the SEC by filing an S1. S1, right. So, you know, assuming you don't get a full review, which, you know, the SEC could, could want to take it out a little bit further to get, you know, more uh, information from the company. Generally, the holding period would be sometime between 30 to 60 days for one to get through the S1 and get it what's called effective. Does a Reg A that you see some public companies doing now, since they made it available to public enterprises, is does that technically qualify as a pipe? You know, I guess you could say that, JP. I mean, I really like the, what they've done with the Jobs Act. I, I think that it's opened up companies. It's been very difficult, as you guys know, for the sub-50, sub-60 million dollar market caps to raise capital. I think that general solicitation, which would have thrown us in jail in the 90s and the early 2000s, right. 
for the ability for the smaller companies to use reggae, I think is, is, is excellent. You know, I, I think the new legislation that they're passing through for Reg D to go from maybe a million dollars to raise as much as five million uh, is, is really good news. You know, I, I, it seems to me, and I can't speak for the SEC, but it seems like they've turned the corner and decided to allow smaller companies more access to capital, including, you know, changing some of the rules that are in place now. They're trying to change uh, finders, finders being able to raise capital for small companies, you know, w without being uh, actually registered with FINRA or having a Series 7 or whatnot. So I think that's really compelling. To me, it's an about face. Uh, and they're starting to look at this environment, which has been brutal, as we all know, uh, other ways and, and backing off from the restrictions of small companies and providing them access to capital that we haven't seen before. And I, I think Reg A, you know, is, is a good deal. Uh, I think crowdfunding, any of these things, I think that enable companies to grab uh, large amounts of capital to grow their business is a good thing. You mentioned how y'all were going, uh, you said institutional list, and I assume you mean basically in those days you were banging out the phones, right? All, all the business was on the phone, JP, absolutely. Yep. So have you, and I know you're, which we're going to talk about, you're running a public company now, but um, have you personally or with your colleagues seen this shift that we're hearing and seeing where road shows, for example, are, you know, Zoom shows right. now. I mean, it's, yeah. and people being yeah. able to create an almost an accelerated road show path and raise as much or more money through that. Are you seeing the same thing? People's willingness to shift and do business in a different way? I, I am. I mean, look, we all know that meeting, you know, meeting people in person, especially if, you know, you're uh, somewhat professional is, is better than not, at least in my opinion. However, uh, being in, you know, in San Francisco in my whole life, I think you're seeing a sea change out here, which I think will be replicated if it isn't already. Um, big companies, my, my, my daughter works for Facebook, you know, my son's at, at, at a company called Indeed. And these companies are basically saying, you don't have to come back, maybe not ever. Yeah, and you know, sure, engineers are probably gonna have to show up, but the whole dynamic is changing out here. I don't know about New York, but you know, for example, LinkedIn in San Francisco is saying, there's no reason to have an office anymore, which is pretty extraordinary. You know? and, and I think what you're seeing is that people are able you know, to work on their own, to motivate themselves, to do business. They're seeing that in the last couple quarters, despite the COVID. And I think that they're more productive. Ironically, you're not sitting in a car and, and the Bay Area traffic's gotten to be ruthless. So if you're in a car for three hours, you've got another three hours in the day to be more productive for your company. So I think you're right. seeing a sea change. I wouldn't want to be long a lot of commercial real estate in some of these places, but I think you're seeing a lot of uh, dynamics that have shifted to your point that it's okay, you know, to to be on a a, um, a Zoom call, and I think that uh, things are getting done, which is great. And I think that maybe, you know, a year from now, after this thing passes, and the, and hopefully, God willing, the vaccine starts working, we get back to going to conferences and and meeting people. But right now, I mean, I don't see why one would want to get on an airplane and go sit with a couple hundred people in a room to go to a conference. 
Yeah, that is true. You know, we've talked to a couple CEOs on the show, and they found it to be very effective doing the virtual road shows. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, and I think that I think people are getting into that mindset that even when it starts to come back, it's like where are their social skills again? Right? About yeah. the handshaking and about the about the, the the being at the bar and having the deal done at the bar and you know all that stuff may be just history. I want to talk a little yeah. bit about the challenges with, as you said, sub fifty million uh, market value raising capital in the markets today. If I understood what you said in just a moment. But before we do, if you're watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our previous archives, our previous episodes, as well as subscribe, follow us, get access to us by going to thedealflowshow.com, thedealflowshow.com. And by the way, we're also now, thanks to our team, on nearly every audio and video platform in existence. So big kudos to The Deal Flow Show team and everybody that's been working behind the scenes on this. But, um, so Bill, explain what you mean by that. And is this something, maybe we could pivot towards what you're doing now. Is this something you've experienced personally as a CEO now of a public company? Or is this just an observation in terms of the challenges of raising capital in the markets if you're under that tier? Well, I, I, look, I think relationships are key. And when you've been around as long as I have, you know, you have some pretty good relationships through the years where, look, I, I keep going back to integrity. I, I think my grandfather, who was a wonderful guy, told me, you know, when you lie, you have to remember. So at a very early age, I decided that I wasn't smart enough to remember anything. So I'm just going to tell the truth all the time. And I'm not the smartest guy, but when I'm dealing with people, there's an integrity factor and a transparency that I'm, I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. I'm trying to give you as much information as I can about a particular company so that you can make, you know, an intelligent observation and, and decision to whether or not you want to invest in it. And that way, as long as you're, you're, you're working on the lines of integrity and transparency, you're building enough trust that through the years, uh, you can keep continue to go back to that, that institution or individual that you have this, this, this long history with. So, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to raise uh, over a million dollars in the last several months with some great institutions that I've known for some time. Um, I take a mindset that, you know, as, as a CEO, it's a war on capital. And it's a fine line that, you know, you have to balance the aspect of dilution with being a steward for the shareholders. Because let's face it, I, you know, I, I work for the shareholders and I'm trying to increase shareholder value. And at what point do you take in some money and how do you deploy it? What's the best use of that money? Uh, and how do you, you know, raise money at higher levels? Because ultimately my responsibility as I see it is to raise money at higher levels as we build a growth company. And so I think in this environment, you know, you have to consider all options for raising capital. Um, and I have found that, you know, we've been fortunate with some, some pretty good institutions that want to help us, you know, with the company and let it grow and, and invest in it. Um, but that being said, you know, I, I think that you have to have good auditors. You have to have good lawyers. Um, I filed an S1 recently and we got it through in about nine or 10 days. Uh, I think that's wow. representative of the fact that, you know, we have good auditors and we have really good lawyers that, uh, 
you know, really know what they're doing. And I think that helps as a reflection of the company. And so I think in this environment, you know, you just have to continue to network. You have to uh, continue to work on, on existing and new relationships. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's a knife fight in an elevator. You just can't stop. You just have to keep, you know, almost evangelically talking about your mission, what you're doing. And, and I really don't judge JP Paul. I, I try to tell the story the best way I do, I can and, and see if there's an interest on the other side to help us, you know, grow the business. So I think this environment is, is a tricky one, but I think it's getting better, actually. I know that sounds strange, but I think the, vi the environment is getting better. Low interest rates, public companies, you know, offer uh, as an alternative investment a little bit of a turbocharge to your portfolio, in the, in the, especially in the form of private placements. You've raised a lot of money, Bill, in your career, and you've, you've answered really a lot of this next question that I'm going to ask you. But what, what else can you tell our audience about the do's and don'ts in capital raising? I know it's not an exact science and, you know, it's, it's hard to make generalizations, but, you know, I, I think there are certain things that, that you can do. I mean, if, if, for example, I, I've, I don't know, I've probably raised over a billion dollars in, in 30 years and, you know, I never was one to charge upfront fees. You know, I just always wanted to base, you know, everything on my performance. You Success know, fees. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just, I was always a, a sports guy and everything to me is a microcosm of sports and it's about performance and you're only as good as, you know, the, the last game you pitched. And I just felt coming into a new relationship, it would be unfair for me when you don't know my firm or me to say, give me $50,000 and I'll go do the best I can for you. And then you know, 30 to 60 days later, you, for whatever reason, you failed. And the guy says, what did you do for the 50 grand? And, and so I felt that would be very hard to, uh, to justify. So it, when it comes to, to raising capital, you know, I, I felt that, you know, you really want to be performance based and, and, and running a broker dealer or having the distribution of a BD uh, you know, your reputation is, is really, you don't think about that at 25, but, you know, luckily if you did, when you're 35 or 45, your reputation is key. You know, it gets, mm -hmm. your word gets around, the way you treat people uh, is, is prevalent in, in a lot of different ways. So I think it's important to treat people fairly and honestly, and it gets back, to, of course, to that, that thesis of, of an integrity. Um, but you know, I, I just think that you got to know your customer too, guys. I think, you know, what we did really well, Paul, when we worked with you and, and running the BD as a CEO, I knew what my customers wanted and really as a salesman, kind of as an investment banker, you, why sell your customer something that they don't generally do? It's like swimming upstream. Right. So if I know my customer likes liquidity then I'm going to find companies that are liquid and these aren't real estate plays. So if I can bring them opportunities that are liquid, you know, that gives them an opportunity at some point down the road when they want to get out of the position that they can get out. And uh, I think knowing your customer is really important. Um, and I think that the ability as a, as a banker to be able to quantify dilution is key because there are a lot of characters out there and if you can't quantify dilution to the board 
uh, I think it's uh, something you might want to pass on because I think it's important that you have fixed price conversions, fixed prices with board's ability to say, should we do this transaction or not? Because I think the, the contingent liability going forward is sure, if the stock goes up, it's great. But if the stock goes down, it becomes, you know, uh, not so pretty when someone's c converting stock at, you know, tens of millions of shares into your company, because you really should be able to quantify dilution. I think that's important. I like your mindset of performance-based. Years ago, one of my mentors said to me, he said, JP, sales is the only profession where you get paid exactly what you're worth. And I think... <laughs> Anytime you can connect what you do to performance, it puts you in the in the the yoke with whoever it is that you're working with. You're both pulling for the same success. And I know at, at one of the statements we make to people here at Harbor City when we're looking to partner up with a company is we say, you know, we bring together and give people access to resources, capital, as well as new customers, which are the things that companies need to grow. It's what they feed on. But we also right. say, we don't need our lunch money. We know where right. our lunch money's coming from. We want to win when you win. We want to win when you succeed. We all succeed right. in a big way. Yep. And I like that. But, but, that also puts the, the, the pressure on you to evaluate and choose deals appropriately so right. we only have so much bandwidth. So how do you, how do you evaluate, and I'm going back again to your previous work, but how did you evaluate deals? What is your process for defining, is this deal right for us? Is it the right time? Is it the right market? I get the, are these good people? And I get the whole bet the jockey thing, but, but how do you evaluate the deal to make sure it's worth you putting your energy into? I mean, that's a great point, right? And, and as a greed animal, because most of us on Wall Street are, you know, where's the path of least resistance to get paid, you know, and selfishly for me, because I started at zero every year, like a lot of us did, uh, where can I get paid? Where can my customers actually be put in a position where one, I can get paid, it might not be the priority, maybe second, two, where can they make the most money possible? And Jax would always say, you know, I, I'm a visionary and I, you know, I, I'm looking for the big the big move up on growth or whatnot, Jax would always look for fixed assets on a balance sheet. And well, what the heck do I need you for, need you for, for that? And anybody would lend money against a good solid fixed asset. <laughs> Let's go find the hard deals. And, and when they work, you know, they're extraordinary. They're 20, 30 X in 12 months with warrants. And I was fortunate enough to be in several of those. And it's a great feeling JP when, when you make people money. You know, when uh, they make that kind of money and as a banker, you know, there's a lot of goodwill in that. You know, when you make somebody 10, 20 times on their money in 12 months, six months, they tend to want to do your next deal, you know. And so it makes your job a little easier when you got a little wind at your back and you've had a few, uh, you had a winning streak. Fair enough. So how did you evaluate the deals? That was my question. <laughs> <laughs> First and foremost, I would I would look at management, uh, and we would do due diligence on management, you know, to make sure there's no skeletons. Um, we would look at the, net, the the dynamics of the stock, go through the filing, see who the large shareholders are, see when the last time they had filed a reg statement. So we would do an extensive amount of due diligence, and I would look at it from the eyes of the investor. 
You know, I mean, is there a significant upside? Uh, is there some inflection point coming in which case, you know, maybe there's an FDA approval coming and the stock might rocket. Um, and so when you start looking at those things and you put them all together, then it gets down to, should I put my time and energy into this, into this company? Because you're right, JP. I mean, time is money. Your most valuable commodity is your time. And what's the opportunity cost in going down that path with someone that doesn't work out and you missed, you know, the next 10X. And so that's always in your mind. I, I think the priority would be the individuals. I, I really think that the, you know, <laughs> the people that have had a track record of executing are the guys that you want to bank, you know, and I've heard this before and, you know, I'd rather have, you know, a, you know, a quasi questionable, you know, opportunity or technology with a world-class operator than phenomenal technology with an average operator. I think you can set yourself apart by piggybacking on guys that have had a track record. And, you know, I mean, look at, anything from Steve Jobs, Apple was almost bankrupt, he comes back. I don't think it's an accident, you know, that it does so well. I think that if you look at Elon Musk, not that I got the opportunity to invest in anything he had, because they're all billion dollar companies. But if I was at Goldman Sachs, I'd be riding, I'd be riding Elon Musk, you know, coattail the whole way. The guy just doesn't seem to make mistakes. You know, he's, uh, he's almost like Marvin Davis, you know, in the, the new century. You know, you talk about your sports analogy before, too. You can say it, right? How does a coach go from one team to another, and all of a sudden that team is at the NBA sure. Finals in the World Series and it's so true. forth? You're right. It's, yeah, It's very true. I mean, yep. that's, I know talent has something to do with the team, but there's a reason why they're always in the playoffs. There's no question right. about it. I'm gonna ask, I normally don't like asking questions I don't know the answer to, but... There's a book I read. There's a book I read. I actually went back and read, reread this book several times over the years. It was a book called On a Roll by Howard Jonas. He was the guy that started the callback industry many, many years ago. Okay. Um, he yeah. owned, um, I think it was Prodigy for some period of time, okay. but way, way back. But he had a chapter in the book called Gold in the Gutter. And I've always been fascinated by this. And we've had personal experience with this. But he said some of the best people he ever added to his team were people who were exceptional performers, were great operators, or whatever their core skill set was within an organization. But for some reason, they'd gotten kicked to the curb. It could have been an 08, 09 financial crisis. It could have been yeah. getting in bed yeah. with the wrong people, whatever it might yeah. have been. But they'd gotten kicked to the curb and that he had found some of his best talent in the gutter, basically, that gold in the gutter. How have you been able to, over the years, assemble the teams for the particular projects? What do you watch for, and not just the leader or the operator, but the kind of people that you bring together for deals? How have you built the network? I mean, can you give us some sense of how you've put together that roster? Yeah, I, I think that um, you're certainly looking for, you know, hungry guys um, or gals. You know, I think that uh, you want people that have, you know, had some success somewhere along the way. Um, they, they work together, they, they share a common theme, which is they're street smart and book smart, um, humble, and uh, they generally tell the truth. 
You know, I think it's really important to be surrounded by people that uh, are constantly trying to do the right thing. It's a Wall Street's a tough place. You know, you, you've got regulatory constantly with FINRA and the SEC, and you want to always be compliant. I, I was very fortunate. I was never sued and didn't have any customer complaints. And not that I was better at making people money, because I certainly wasn't, but you just try to always surround yourself with, you know, a, a team of guys that are smart uh, and that know what they're doing and bring value add. And I think people's skill sets vary from person to person. Um, and so if you can find talent that fits into a group of people that share a common goal, which is to increase market cap, uh, you know, then everyone wins. And it, it truly is rewarding. It's a great feeling when you fund a company, the investors work, maybe they have a product that, you know, helps leukemia patients or, you know, they have a product that helps the consumer in some way. So, you know, I always felt that, you know, when I early in my life, I, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to get into Wall Street or if I was going to go sell insurance. And I just felt like, you know, the opportunity on Wall Street was amazing to me because, you know, I, I started gambling as a golfer when I was young. And to me, you know, Wall Street was a little bit like that. But each day was different. And you'd meet companies and CEOs that love what they're doing. They're passionate about it. Uh, they give their life to it and they're committed and and I like people like that, you know, and and so I would constantly look for people that are like that. And then I would continue to to make sure I was available to them. I would continue to perform any way I could for them with my brokerage firm, like you guys having all kinds of ancillary relationships and that can augment and help build the business. And they get all of that under one umbrella, if you think about it. So in theory, you're, you're setting yourself apart from a lot of your competitors because of the way you handle yourself and because of the things you bring to the table to that particular company. And I would try to do the same so that we would have multiple bites at the apple to help them fund round two, three, four. Sometimes we'd have four or five. We'd take them public. We'd do reverse mergers back then and we'd take them public and then we would have multiple transactions. And if they executed, they made you look smart. And now all of a sudden you're doing trades that, you know, that were two or three or four or five million. You're doing 10 and 20 million transactions at multiples of where you did the first one years ago. And you're basically doing that not only because it's, you know, it's self-serving. However, you don't want to lose that customer to a Goldman Sachs or a DLJ or, you know, Morgan Stanley that are starting to come down to where you live, which is the microcap world. And when they are not doing so well, the last thing you want to do is see, you know, your competition with, you know, in a bold bracket uh, that might have more resources than you. So I think that, that you're protected through the relationships that you establish. Very interesting. Um, I want to get into innovative payment solutions before we run out of time. Before we get into that, uh, once again, if you're watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our archives, our previous episodes, as well as subscribe and follow us and get access to our future episodes by going to thedealflowshow.com. That's thedealflowshow.com. And okay, so Bill Corbett, Innovative Payment Solutions. Let's talk about today. What is the business that you're running 
and it's a disrupt, in my opinion, a disruptive technology, and. Uh, serves a great place in the market. I want to talk a little bit about that and maybe where you're taking the business. Sure, appreciate it. Thank you very much. So um, when I was an investment banker, I, I took a company public called Quapagos, uh, which was deploying, uh, let's call it kiosks in Mexico. Uh, and we spent about five years. Uh, I helped the company, brought them public, raised capital for them, brought in some advisors and tried to help any way I could um, and built a business that was using about 2 million Mexicans uh, in the network to send digital payments in Mexico um, and was very, very uh, compelling in Mexico because there's long lines to, you know, make utility payments or to make micro, micro loan payments. And this kiosk, which was a very sophisticated uh, machine, had the ability to do that. Um, we sold the business last year, did about 11 million. We saw an opportunity to grow a FinTech out of Southern California that would focus really, uh, JP and Paul, on the um, what we call the underbanked and the unbanked. And what we mean by that is these kiosks are, are extremely sophisticated. So one could pay a utility bill while they're standing in Los Angeles for their dad's utility bill in Mexico City. Uh, top off a cell phone. Uh, so we're in the early stages of building a fintech. Uh, we find it um, very exciting because these kiosks can operate as a as a bank, if you will, uh, for the unbanked or the underbanked. Uh, there's uh, more than 12 million in Southern California, all the way up to where I live. Uh, I live in Pebble Beach and run the business out of Southern California. But if you think of the breadbasket, of Salinas uh, all the way down the San Joaquin Valley. You know, 80% of the fruit and vegetables are grown uh, in this state. And with that, there's $40 billion a year being wired to Mexico, $40 billion. And of which um, a large part of that comes from California. So our objective really is to deploy kiosks uh, in the next several months that operate as um, what we would call a um, digital wallet. Uh, it has the ability, the machine will have the ability, the kiosk to wire money to Mexico. Uh, we were, we want to create our own uh, stable coin. It's a dollar backed stable coin that we can send money to Mexico with uh, that we feel would use blockchain in a closed loop. We think that's very exciting. And, you know, when you look at the macro side, guys, you know, this is a, a population, the underbanked and, and unbanked, that hasn't been treated too fairly by uh, the, the oligopoly of, of the big conglomerates that have um, charged a lot of money uh, to send money to Mexico and around the world for 20, 30 years. Um, so we see this as um, convenient, having a kiosk where they can do these things. Uh, price competitive, where we think it could be cheaper than anything in the market, um, and we think that it'll settle quickly. And with an e-wallet, we have the ability for them to put money in the machine. We have these uh, aggregators in Mexico that we're, we have this long legacy with for five years. Um, but it, with an e-wallet, and they download an app, they'll be able to send money while they're sitting on the couch and not have not have to run out to the money transmitting businesses and and um, we think that's that's a really good point. So 
we're uh, we're building a fintech. We think as a pubco guys, uh, we have many opportunities to uh, add ancillary businesses and roll up some businesses into it. Um, my goal, you know, which is what I, my dream would be to build a two to three hundred million dollar company in the next couple of years, and you know, be successful at helping a group of people that could use a break and and get a piece of this $40 billion a year that's going uh, to Mexico. Do you see this only U.S. down, or do you see this spreading out in other markets? We've had some recent conversations with our banking contacts, and the whole buzz in Honduras and Guatemala and everywhere is contactless banking, contactless um, subsidies, contactless bill pay. Everybody, yeah. because of COVID, it's driving, obviously driving this. Do you see all expanding uh, where, where do you see it headed to get to that two to three hundred million i see you know the world is is wide open i i think you could send money to mexico you could send money to india uh like you're saying guatemala i i think there's there's many different avenues for us to explore i think there's plenty of business here to build a, a remarkable business just in southern cal up to the central valley and and salinas uh however you know, if, if you look at the macro side, uh, you could become really a distribution hub. So one comes up to the kiosk and they want to buy a lotto ticket in Mexico. They want to pay their dad's cell phone bill in Mexico and they hit a button. Uh, maybe they want a microloan, which I know is, is kind of a, a dirty word. But, you know, the reality is, is if you do it right, you're providing a good service. So let's say you want to get into, you know, betting on NFL games in one day. So if you have a thousand kiosks throughout California, you know, you wake up one day and you say, hey, I think the shareholders would benefit from having this in the kiosk. And so the kiosk really is, is in the path of their lifestyle, wherever that is in a, a grocery store or uh, a liquor store. And so I think if you get in with the right influencers, guys, you can spread like wildfire. If you're competitive uh, and it settles quickly, I think there's all kinds of different businesses we could grow out of this. But it starts, I think, with you know developing a brand, getting them comfortable with sending the money to Mexico, and and on the other end, maybe maybe it's cheaper when on the receiver receiving it, and it's easier for them with their the way they're, they they. Um, they conduct their business. Do you currently have the kiosks or where are you in the process? Uh, we have 60 kiosks in, uh, where, in our warehouse in Southern California. With COVID, it, it kind of slowed us down a little bit. Um, however, when I look at the what's going on, the, the remarkably, the wire remittance business to Mexico has gone up about nine or 10% year over year during, despite the, the virus and the, and the COVID. So I think what we're seeing, guys, is, you know, people that do essential jobs, you know, that they pick our, our lettuce and that, you know, do jobs that are essential uh, on the front lines and they have money and they're making money and they're really committed to sending that money back to Mexico for their families. And so if we can help them with that and make it more convenient and cheaper, uh, we think we could we could you know grab market share and ultimately we think we can build a a really compelling business around it. When when do you see yourself deploying these kiosks? I would say to you that in the next sixty days, the next thirty five to sixty days, we'll be deploying. 
Uh, we've got some great advisors that are helping us. Uh, we've got a great law firm that's into blockchain technology, uh, advising us on, on uh, what we should be doing because it's imperative that you're compliant. Uh, obviously, in everything that one does, you should be compliant. I think life uh, is a lot easier that way. Uh, and right. so uh, we're making sure we have good counsel uh, on making sure that, you know, we're doing everything the right way. Because if we build it properly the right way, uh, we think we'll thrive. And there's no reason to, to do it any way but the right way. So it's taking a little longer because of COVID. But sure. uh, it, very, people are very receptive to wanting to put the kiosks in their businesses, Paul. What are you considered? You're not a bank. Um, what, what technically, how are you classified as a business? Well, I think we're, we're really fitting into the mold of the fintech, JP. Um, you know, when I look at some of these companies, uh, it's a hot space. Uh, Square in San Francisco, uh, I've watched grow from an, from an early day. Um, I, I, PayPal's killing it. And, and I'm not in any shape comparing us to PayPal, but you know, they've gotten into the, the money remittance business. Uh, they've really hurt MoneyGram and Western Union. Uh, they're very good at it. And I, I would say we're a, we're a startup that's a fintech um, that um, is into digital payments and finding the quickest, cheapest way to make payments uh, abroad. Well, the reason I asked the question, and I don't know how deep you want to get into this or open this can of worms on, on the air, but... You know, the cannabis industry is historically one of those unbanked or underbanked industries because of the federal yeah. guideline or the, the, the I guess, uh, conflict between state and federal laws, right? Um, right. But in, in a reality, you're sort of an on-ramp to digitize cash. True. Right? True. And, and if you are an on-ramp to digitize cash, do you see a future for y'all in that cannabis industry? Is it sort of like, you're okay if it happens, you just don't want to know about it? Or is that a, is that a serviceable, um, because you know, obviously with Patriot and all, those are the things you're, you're dealing with certain limitations and caps and all of that. But I could, I could, I mean, I know these guys, some of these guys, they got, you know, pallets of cash. They're paying their taxes in cash. They're paying their employees in cash because they're unbanked. Yep. I, it's, it's a good point. I, I mean, I, being in California, I would welcome it. Um, I've had discussions with banks. I think ultimately, if we could find a partner in a bank that was wide open, I know that's a slippery slope with the way the feds look at it, but if we could find a bank, we could really help the cannabis industry. I, I want to focus on proving the platform uh, in the short term with money remittance, uh, and payments and a distribution system, but I would think as an adjunct, that's a that's a phenomenal business. Absolutely. Yeah, and you're speaking my language when you talk about having a platform and then looking at that platform from a perspective of monetizing with multiple opportunities and offers. So many businesses they they get the blinders on and they see their particular product that they're selling that product and they're going to go look for more people, as opposed to saying. Here are the people I'm solving problems for. What are the other problems that I could solve for them from, for right, those same people right. with a singular acquisition cost? And kudos to you and Innovative Payment Solutions for what you're doing. I wanted to ask, though, Bill, are you guys in the middle of any kind of funding round right now? Are you looking for capital right now? Or? Not right now, but, you know, Paul, as, as we talked about today, I mean, 
I think one has to keep an open mind into raising capital. I, I think, you know, in 30 years, I can't remember saying a, a CEO looking at me saying, Bill, I, I don't really need any money today. Okay. <laughs> you know, right. So, right. I mean, I, I'm just amazed at all these different businesses that I've funded or I've gotten to know, they all need money all the time. Um, right. So I would say to you that I'm, I'm, I'm always looking for partners to help us grow. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to expand eyeballs. I, to me, I think liquidity is key. I think it's the lifeblood of a of PubCos. And I think that one has to keep an eye on making sure their stock has got eyeballs on it and you're relevant and you know, you're putting out, you know, press releases that are, um, completely compliant, but that are in an orderly way informing the shareholders or, or people watching you. So. I, I would say to you, I'm always I'm always open to looking at ideas, uh, especially you know if we can if we can execute, then we get the stock higher through that execution. We're raising money at less dilutive values because down here we're we're a small company, but and sure. I'm a little selective on you know opening the floodgates down here. But right. uh, that being said, I'm always open to uh, discussions about capital. The DealFlow Show team sits at the center of DealFlow. And like I said, we have resources, capital sources, um, people with opportunities. What kind of people would you like to hear from from our audience or be introduced to by Daniel Pinaranda, our producer, Paulie and our, myself? Um, and then what's the best way to reach out to you? You know, I, I would say my website would probably be the best way to reach out. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in expanding, you know, my network. I, this is the first time I've been a CEO after, you know, 30 years on wall street. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm open to people that you think they can create value for my shareholders. Uh, I've, I've got an advisory team that I'm putting together that it's, it's exceptional. They're wonderful guys. Um, they have a great track record. Uh, Anything that I can do to uh, raise, uh, I guess, you know, raise awareness to the company uh, would be good for my shareholders. So uh, I'm, I haven't really done much at all on IRPR. I'm going to start to look to kind of do some of that stuff as we get ramping here. Um, but I would say to you guys that um, anyone that, you know, has a track record and it looks like value add, I'm, I'm always looking to try and increase shareholder value. And. I feel like a coach in a way where I'm, I'm gathering advisors and people to the team that I think make us a great ball club, you know, and hopefully with aspirations to, to play in the playoffs and, you know, eventually win a championship. My, my goal is, is to make the shareholders a bunch of money and see evaluations that make us proud over the next several years. That's kind of what, what I'm doing. It's my full-time position that, I live and breathe, and, and hopefully we bring the right players to help us do that. Very good to make your acquaintance. Looking forward to our offline conversations as well and seeing what value we can add to Innovative. If you're um, watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show and you're thinking, hmm, maybe I'd make a good guest for this show or maybe I know somebody who'd be a great guest for the show, be sure to reach out to us at thedealflowshow.com. Of course, when you get there, you can also subscribe, follow us. You can get access to all of our previous episodes as well. On behalf of our team here at the Harbor City Capital and The Deal Flow Show team, Mr. Paul Nicolini, I'm JP Maroney. Bill Corbett, Innovative Payment Solutions. So good to have you on. We'll see you, everyone, in the next episode. Thanks, Take care. For more episodes, visit thedealflowshow.com and subscribe.